Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them out and turn with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 29 is where we are going to be this morning. And can I ask you to do something? I I don't normally do this, but can I ask you just to stand again? And uh, I want to pray. I want to stand um, even the way that we saw in Job, the sons of God were standing in the presence of the Lord and worshiping him. And um, what we're going to deal with in this text this morning, I believe, has such far reaching implications for our own hearts that I, I want to just kind of together as Christ Bible Church collectively ask the Lord um, to use us that we would consecrate ourselves to him this morning before we even attempt to be changed here. So uh, just pray with me. God, we have so many idols in our hearts. And we stand now in your presence knowing that we need to lay those things down, knowing that we desperately need to be affected by you and your love and care for us. God, what we're going to look at this morning is an idol that we all struggle with from time to time in various ways and various manifestations. And so, God, I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts. We don't even have to pray that he would come. He's here. We pray that he would work. Make our hearts soft. Make our minds moldable. Give us humility to see ourselves in light of these passages and these verses. And God, I pray that you would show us Jesus. The love that he has for us is greater than any love that we could possibly know. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who loves us and cherishes us. Amen. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. Genesis chapter 29 is where we are going to be. A little bit of introduction for us this morning. We have been looking at idolatry, the idols of our hearts. Uh, John Calvin said that the heart is an idol factory, just spitting out idols left and right. We looked at Hebrews chapter 12. We began uh, just kind of this series at the beginning of the year, looking at the understanding of encumbrances. We have the sin that so easily entangles us, but we also have encumbrances, good things that become bad things when they turn into God things, when we place supreme affection and when we place supreme hope in them to satisfy us. We spent a while introducing this concept and then we looked specifically last week at the idol of money. We looked at greed. We looked at being overly anxious for money. We looked at the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus and we kind of looked at the rich young ruler, the rich old ruler and how grace changed Zacchaeus's life. What I want to look at this morning is really what I would call the idol of love. The idol of love. It shows itself in many different ways, and the reality is the world around us is constantly preaching that you need to be loved. Um, You turn on the television at pretty much any time, and it's either a show about dating or people talking about dating, finding true love, Browse through the movie section on Netflix and you will, you will see a, a romance section. Even 
Christian music has bought into this concept. I remember growing up listening to a band that sang a song. said, we all want to be loved. We all want just a little respect. We all want to be loved. And tell me what's wrong with that. Tell me what's wrong. We all want to be loved. Even things as silly as the princess bride, right? True love. That's, everybody loves it. They want it. That's what our hearts are focused on. We're searching for it and we're finding it. The reality is love can become an idol. Desiring love, desiring affection can become an idol. And it shows itself in this narrative in so many different ways. Specifically, we've seen with idolatry that we do three things with our idols. We love them, we trust them, and we obey them. We love, we trust, and we obey the idols that we have. For instance, last week we looked at the idol of money. When we love money, um, we do everything that we can to get it. It becomes our functional God. And then as we love money, we begin to trust in it. It becomes our security. We trust in our bank account and our savings account and not in God And then we obey our money, our master. We do whatever it takes to get more money and we do whatever it takes to keep the money that we have. The same thing is true with the idol of love. We love love. We trust in love and we obey love. And this narrative in Genesis 29, familiar to many of us, illustrates how a quest for love, for being loved, for feeling loved, can become a very serious form of love of slavery, and it wrecks your life. It's absolutely and entirely possible to make romantic love, to make marriage, to make sexual fulfillment into a God, and to place your hope and happiness and contentment in those things over the one true God. So Genesis chapter 29, we are at the beginning of our calendar year, so maybe you are starting your Bible reading plan, maybe you've read this section already. Um, if we go back, a little background, if we go back to Abraham, Abraham was told by God, you're going to have a son, and through him and through your descendants, the nations of the earth will be blessed. Abraham said, this, um, Sarah said, there's no way, I'm old, I can't do this. And remember, they try um, to kind of work the magic themselves, and so they have Ishmael. Uh, he's not the promised child. God says he's not the promised child. And then they have Isaac. Isaac is the promised one, the promised child. Uh, Even in that scenario, you have a little bit of a love problem because um, Sarah loves Isaac and ends up sending Ishmael away, Hagar and Ishmael away, says, I don't want you guys here anymore. Then Isaac, as he grows up, he finds a wife, Rebecca, and they have two kids, two twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Remember, Esau is born first, Jacob is born second, and yet God says there's a promise that the older will serve the younger, even though it's supposed to be the other way around. The younger is supposed to serve the older, but in this case, the older is going to serve the younger. The birthright will ultimately be given to Jacob, the younger son. And you remember how that happens. Uh, You remember Jacob lies. You remember Isaac says, please, Esau, I want to give you your birthright. I want to give you your blessing. Please go and kill uh, an animal. Bring him. uh, We will have a feast, and I will give you my blessing. And as Esau goes away, Jacob, who was not loved by Isaac, you remember um, Rebekah is the one who loved Jacob, and Isaac loved uh, Esau. Jacob says, you know what, I want this blessing. And Rebekah says, I know a way to get it. Through deception, they end up giving the blessing. Isaac gives the blessing to Jacob. What does Esau do when he comes back? 
And Esau says, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. Jacob runs away. Jacob has to flee. And from that moment on, his life begins to crumble. So much so that the, the one person in his life that loved him, that cherished him, Rebecca, um, he'll never see again. He'll never see his mother again. And once he flees because of his decision to lie and deceive and to cheat Esau out of his blessing, he has to run away. And he flees in Genesis 29. He flees to Laban, his uncle, who is a part of Rebekah's family, his uncle on Rebekah's side. And it is here in Genesis 29 that he starts working for Laban and he meets a woman by the name of Rachel. Go down to verse 11 or verse 9. While he was still speaking with them, Genesis 29, verse 9, Rachel came with her father's sheep, Laban is her father, for she was a shepherdess. And when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. Jacob told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. So... When Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Then he related to Laban all these things. Laban said to him, surely you are bone, my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. And Laban said, verse 15 to Jacob, because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what will your wages be. So Jacob flees to his uncle's um, house, uncle's land. He starts tending the sheep. Laban sees that he's doing a great job and says, you're relative. I want to take care of you. Jacob is enamored by Rachel, sees Rachel, um, weeps, kisses her, says, this is the woman of my dreams, absolutely in love with this woman. And so when Laban says, okay, you're, you're my relative. I'm not going to cheat you out of Um, money or wages, tell me what your wages would be. Tell me what it is that you are going to work for me for. What do you you want? One word, Uh, Rachel. I will do whatever it takes to get her. I will do whatever it takes. Now, I've heard people talk about this and how, oh, how precious this is. Like, oh, he so loves her. It's so sweet. We're going to see why it's not sweet. We're going to see what happens when the idol of love becomes slavery, it destroys your life. It wrecks everything around you. Verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. So you've got older daughter, younger daughter. Verse 17. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and of face. So she had, literally, in the Hebrew, she had a beautiful body and she had a beautiful face. So she is gorgeous. Verse 18, now Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Seven years. Now again, we go, oh, that's so sweet. He'll do whatever it takes to get her. This is stupid. This is not sweet. This is over five times the price of a normal dowry for purchasing a bride. And um, obviously the culture was very different back there. So don't, don't get too offended by that. that. That's just the way that the culture works. Uh, You purchased with a dowry a bride. But he says, I will do whatever it takes. I will do whatever it takes. Five times as much in payment for a woman 
because he says, I can't live without her. I need her. Laban says, it is better that I give her to you than to give her to another man. So stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Again, oh, that's so sweet. Seems just a few days because he loved her. Jacob has an idol problem. Um, Jacob has a problem with loving one person so much and thinking that they will fulfill his deepest desires and deepest longings and hopes. And we're going to see the story gets worse. We're just going to meander through this story, by the way. If you're an outline or a bullet point person, sorry. <laughs> Today, we're just going to meander through it. We're going to see Jacob. We're going to see Leah. We're going to see uh, Rachel. We're going to see all these people and the way that they deal with these idols of love. Verse 21, he has served seven years, and Jacob says to Laban, Give me my wife, for my time is completed that I may go into her. So here you see it's not really sweet romantic love. My Bible says, Give me my wife, for my time is completed that I may go into her. The New Living Translation just says it the way it is, that I may sleep with her, NIV, that I may lie with her. Imagine this, fathers. Imagine a young man who's interested in your daughter. says, you know what? I want to marry your daughter. And you say, oh, that's great. You get to know the person. Why do you want to marry my daughter? So I can sleep with her. That shows we've got a problem here. That shows we've got a problem. And Jacob says outright to Laban, that's all I want. She's beautiful, has a beautiful body, has a beautiful face. That's all I want, and I think it's going to satisfy me. Verse 22, Laban gathered all the men of the place, made a feast. Notice Laban doesn't even answer. Uh, He just says, let's go through these motions. Verse 23, now in the evening, he took his daughter Leah, and he brought her to him, and Jacob went into her. Laban also gave his maid Zilpah and his daughter Leah as a maid. So, it came about in the morning that, behold, it was... Leah, and not Rachel. He said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served with you? Why then have you deceived me? And he gives a response. It's not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn, complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also for the service which you shall serve me with for another seven years. Deceived. This is really Jacob getting his comeuppance for deceiving Esau. Um, you you dive into this story and you ask a a number of questions. Number one, how did Jacob not know this? (laughs) How could Jacob not know that this is not Rachel, that this is Leah? How could Jacob not know? Let me give you a couple reasons why he probably didn't know. Number one, it's dark. The feast has gone through the evening and it's dark. Number two, Jacob, for all intents and purposes, probably a little inebriated. Number three, the wife would be veiled heavily. Number four, maybe Laban's doing a little switcheroo here. Maybe Rachel's been dressed up as the wife, heavily veiled. And when Jacob says, I'm going to go to my tent, bring my wife to me, maybe he says, okay, Leah, come on, switcheroo. Because they're in on this. They know what's happening. The bottom line is Jacob wakes up and he has been fooled. All of his deepest longings in his heart were set on Rachel, and that's not what he got. He beholds 
the most beautiful woman he has ever seen. And he must be thinking to himself, if I had her, finally something would go right in my miserable life. Life has just been hard and difficult. And if I had her, it would fix everything. Again, the world tells us this. The world tells us through the Beatles that love is all you need. If you have that, you're fine. So if you don't have love, you have nothing, apparently. Or through Michael Buble, you are nobody until somebody loves you. Doing a a cover song. You're nobody. You're nobody. You are no one until somebody loves you. These kind of messages are preached. And I believe that that's where Jacob is. How did he get to a place where he is placing his hope and his satisfaction in Rachel? How does he get there? Can I just suggest to you, if you look at his life, um, he was unloved by his father. He was loved by his mother. And then he loses his mother. He has to run away. Unloved by his brother. His brother wants to kill him. He's got a love issue. Nobody around him is really caring for him and cherishing him. And because of that, I think he says, you know what? I will find my own love. I will do what it takes to get my love to satisfy my heart. And so the place that only God is supposed to be satisfying, Jacob says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have Rachel satisfy me. I'm going to have Rachel do this. If your love for somebody else becomes your idol, like Jacob, if you start saying, you know what, if only I had that person, everything would be right. Or if only someone loved me, everything would go well. If you have that, then it's going to be an idol and you are going to obey, love and trust it just like you would any other idol. And ultimately, if your love, if idol is your love, you will do anything to get it. And this is what Laban knew about Jacob. Go back to verse 18. Rachel has become an idol for Jacob. That's all he wants. And so he says, I will serve you for seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, Laban knows this guy is crazy. Laban knows that he has an idol problem. And so he's going to prey on it. Laban says, it is better, verse 19, that I give her to you than to give her to another man. Stay with me. What's missing from that response? Yes. There is no yes there. He just says, that would be good. Jacob says, I want Rachel and I will serve you to get her. And Laban says, sounds like a good idea. But he never says yes. But Jacob hears yes. Why? Because all he wants is this woman. So he's going to do anything to get her, and all he wants to hear is yes, so that's what he's going to hear, even in Laban's tricky, deceptive response. Laban can genuinely say, number one, I never told you that I was going to give her to you. I just said that that was a good idea. But number two, when you get down to the deception, people ask, why didn't Jacob just say, I'm done, I'm not being a part of this charade? And I think there's a a certain irony in the fact that, you know what, I can't tell him, how dare you deceive me when I was the one who deceived my brother and my father. Can't do that. Laban's deception of Jacob by giving him the older daughter instead of the younger was one of God's ways of disciplining the deceiver who tricked his older brother. And one commentator says that this account is the very embodiment of anticlimax. And this moment is a miniature of man's disillusion experienced from Eden onwards. We think something temporally, physically will satisfy us, and yet it does not. Yet it does not. 
Another commentator says that Laban secretly gave the unloved Leah to the man in love was, to be sure, a monstrous blow, a masterpiece of shameless treachery. It was certainly a move by which he won for himself far and wide the coarsest laughter. There was a switch, and Jacob is duped. And in the morning, verse 25, behold, it's Leah. Jacob says to Laban, middle of verse 25, what is it that you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served with you? Why then have you deceived me? Laban's answer is a typical one. And he says, you know what? Keep working and I will give you Rachel. And so he does. Jacob did so, verse 28, completed a week, gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife, and then worked for another seven years. Worked for another seven years. Jacob's idolatry led him to a place where he was easily deceived, led him to a place where he was duped, um, led him to a place where he was a slave to his love, to the thing, to the person that he thought would satisfy his heart. He was so lovesick in an idolatrous affair with Rachel. The phrase that we would use is he worshipped the ground that she walked on, which is not a good thing. Many would say, oh, that's so sweet. The reality is that is the most dangerous and deadly form of slavery, to let somebody else become your hope and satisfaction in the deepest parts of your soul. So we see Jacob. Jacob has an idle problem of love, but he's not the only one. We have Leah who's come into the picture. She is married along with Rachel. And in verse 30, Jacob went into Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah. So he served with Laban for another seven years. We've got another person who is unloved. Um, Jacob's unloved, tries to say, you know what, let me, let me be loved and that will satisfy my heart. And now poor Leah. Leah's unloved. Rachel's more loved than Leah. Jacob loves Rachel more than Leah. Why is that? Well, if we can be honest, if you go back to verse 17, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Notice it does not say Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel's were strong. So this isn't a matter of Leah has weak eyes, but Rachel has strong eyes. This is a matter of somehow Leah's eyes were weak. That's a difficult translation. Maybe she was cross-eyed. Maybe she had bad vision. Maybe she wasn't able. Her eyes looked strange. Something happened where, because of the contrast of verse 17, but Rachel was beautiful, somehow it left her ugly. It left her in a place where I think even Laban looks and goes, you know, it's going to be hard to get her married, so let me deceive Jacob and get her married off and Rachel will be married too. We know that Jacob was just infatuated with the physical aspect of Rachel anyway. So Rachel is loved because of her beauty in verse 30. And Leah is despised because of her lack of beauty. So what's she going to do? When Jacob realizes he is unloved, he says, the way I'm going to get love is get Rachel. And when I get Rachel, I will be loved. That will be my fulfillment. Ultimately, he's tricked and it doesn't work. Leah is unloved potentially by her father, but then also now by her husband, how is she going to go about trying to be loved? She can't say, I want another man. She's already married. How is she going to do it? Verse 31. She's going to do it through kids. The Lord saw that Leah was unloved, so he opened her womb, 
but Rachel was barren. So God sees she is unloved and opens her womb, and Leah conceives and bears a son, but you need to listen to the point of son bearing for her, okay? It's in the names that she gives to her sons. She names the first one Reuben, verse 32. For she said, Because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will what? Love me. So Jacob has a love problem. He says, I'm going to marry Rachel and it'll all go away. Leah says, I have a love problem. She says, I'm going to give my husband a son and that will be the means of him loving me. I want to be loved. Here's how I will get love. We do this all the time in many different ways. I want to be loved and here's a way that I can get the love that I want. Poor Reuben. (laughs) It's not like, oh, my son, I love my son. It's great. Now do you love me? Like you can almost see, like, I don't care about the baby. Do you love me? Look. And obviously nothing changes. Reuben means literally, look, a son. The word Reuben has to do with seeing. So maybe she's saying, look, maybe my husband will see me. He will notice me now because of my son. He doesn't. Verse 33, she conceives again and bears a son and says, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved. He has therefore given me this one, this son also. So she names him Simeon. Simeon has to do with hearing or listening So Reuben, maybe my husband will take notice of me and see me. Simeon, maybe my husband will actually listen to me and notice me now and pay attention to me as I speak to him. Verse 34, she conceives again. So obviously this isn't working. Bears a son and says, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So she names him Levi. Levi means joined or attached. So maybe my husband will see me better and actually take notice of me. Maybe my husband will listen to me and pay attention to me. Or, and now Levi, maybe my husband will be attached to me. Maybe this son will draw us closer together. All I want is his affection. All I want is his love. Maybe this son will make it happen. Maybe it will. What is she doing in all of these things? Who is the main subject of these three children? She is so desperate for her husband's affections that her sons just become a means to an end of gaining her husband's love. She's trying to find happiness, but instead every single birth is pushing her down a deeper well of longing. Will this do it? No, it won't, and I'm deeper down in the mire. Will this do it? No, it won't, I'm deeper down. Every day she's trying to find happiness in her husband, loving her, cherishing her, but every day is a knife in her heart when he does not. Now, is it wrong to desire to be loved by your husband or by your wife. Is that wrong? No, it's not wrong. But when it becomes your everything, when it becomes that encumbrance that now your eyes aren't fixed on Jesus, your eyes are fixed on, I don't really feel loved by my spouse and I want my spouse to love me. When it changes, when your whole universe starts revolving around the love of your spouse, then it becomes wrong. A good thing, being loved by your spouse, now becomes a God thing, which is a bad thing. At this point in the story, much like all of Genesis, we're probably asking, what's the moral? <laughs> Who's the hero? Who, do, who am I supposed to live like? Um, we even talked about this in Hebrews chapter 12, where we're supposed to listen to the witnesses, but not fix our eyes on the witnesses. Why? Because the witnesses all preached a better message than they actually ran and lived out. When you ask, be like David. Well, which David should I be like? 
The one who trusted in God and was able to kill Goliath or the one who committed adultery with Bathsheba and tried to cover it up by killing Uriah? Which David? There's not much good in this story. Am I supposed to be like Jacob? No. Rachel? No. Leah? No. Laban? No. One of the reasons why we struggle and we are confused when we read, especially the Old Testament, is we're looking for morals. How should we live our lives? We're just looking for morals when the Bible is not a series of disconnected moral stories like Aesop's fables or something. The Bible is a perfect single story that shows us we all stink. We all sin. We are all despicable and wicked and we can't do anything right. We have a whole chapter that's just mess after mess after mess after mess. And we need a savior. And we need a savior. But there are things we can learn. There are things we can learn from this story, from this narrative, maybe how not to live by deceiving people, obviously. But there are huge implications for the idols in our hearts over love and affection. Let me, let me give you a couple. Number one, what can we learn from this story? Number one, no matter where we place our hopes... No matter what we place our hopes in to satisfy us, in this life, if you place your hope in something other than God to satisfy you, in the morning, it will always be Leah. It will always be Leah. You will always be disappointed. We talked about that with money. People think money is going to get them what they want. And that's one of the reasons why money is such a difficult, and you know, greed is such a difficult idol, because getting money enables you to get all sorts of other things. But when people find out it does not satisfy, um, the average net worth of people that commit suicide is astronomical. You would think, you're rich, why would you just give up on life? And their answer would be, because I thought it would satisfy me, and once I got everything I was working for, it let me down. It's always late in the morning, always. Or to say it another way, we will always be disappointed. We will always be let down if we are seeking after and placing our hopes and desires in the wrong things. Again, it's not wrong to want to be loved by your spouse, but when you place your ultimate satisfaction and your ultimate hope in that, it's a crushing blow to your marriage. If you're married and you are hoping that your husband or your wife will satisfy you and the love that you're desiring and the affection that you're wanting from them, if you're hoping that that is what is going to ultimately give you joy and satisfy you, you are placing a crushing weight on your spouse. You're asking them to fill an infinite void that only God was meant to fill. You're asking them to satisfy an infinite part of your soul that can't be satisfied with finite love. Cannot. Jacob says, if I can just get Rachel, everything will be better. Can I just ask, what is that in your life? What is it that you look at your life and you go, you know what, things aren't too bad, but if I could just get this one thing, then life would be better. Then it would be better. No matter what we place our hopes in, if it's temporal and if it's in this physical world, it will always be Leah in the morning. Nobody has said this better than C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He says this, I quote, Most people, if they have really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. I want and I acutely want, I desperately want, 
but it's something that can't be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promises. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriage. So he's not saying, yeah, unsuccessful marriages don't satisfy. He's saying successful marriages will not ultimately satisfy your heart. So I'm not speaking now of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or vacations or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we have grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife and the hotels and the scenery may be excellent and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. When we place our ultimate hope and satisfaction in something and we love that thing and we treasure that thing, it will always ultimately let us down. Always. As I said, if you get married as Jacob did, putting all the weights of your hopes and deepest longings and dreams into the person that you're marrying, they're going to crush them. You will always be disappointed. It will distort and destroy your life. No one, not even the best possible person in the entire universe can give you all that your soul needs and longs for. You say, okay, so everything in this life is going to let me down. Everything in this life is ultimately going to disappoint me. What do I do? There are four reactions that we normally have when we realize this. When we realize, wait a second, I've been placing my hope in things that aren't fully satisfying me or letting me down. We ultimately have four responses. Number one, we can blame those things that are disappointing us and move on to better ones. We can say, well, of course. Why was I so blind to think that this would satisfy me? I'm moving on to something else that will. We're going to get let down over and over and over again. Number two, we can blame ourselves. We can beat ourselves up and say, I'm a failure. Everybody around me is happy. Everybody around me gets what they want, but I just can never get it and become kind of a self loather. Number three, we can blame the world. It's just kind of the typical curses on everyone. I'm just looking out for me. I want what I want and it's not coming to me. So forget everybody else. I'm just going to look out for number one. Or number four, you can reorient your entire focus on what will satisfy You can shift your entire universe around that which does satisfy so that you will never be let down again. You can say, okay, the sun in my solar system that we're supposed to be going around here is failing me because maybe I've put the moon in its place and it's not working. Everything's out of whack. I'm done with this. I'm done with this. I'm going to reorient my universe around that which will satisfy To finish C.S. Lewis's quote, he says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I was made to be satisfied by something better, by something else. So what must we do? There is one example that is an absolutely glorious example from this narrative of what we must do 
It's instructive for us this morning. It comes only at the end of the story. We've been drug along through this chapter, and it's just failure after failure after failure. Disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. Only at the end do we see light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. And it's interesting because it doesn't even last that long. If you keep reading, these idols keep on popping up. So it's instructed to our hearts to know that we're always going to struggle with these things. We can defeat them, and we know how to based on this passage, but it's always going to become a struggle. But we see here in verse 35, Leah reorients herself. She reorients her heart that had been seeking an idol, the affection of her husband. Again, not a bad thing, but when you turn a a good thing into a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. But now she's going to reorient her heart to seek God alone. Verse 35, she conceives again. So we have had Reuben, we've had Simeon, we've had Levi, and all of them are named after the affection that she is so utterly longing for from her husband that she's not getting. But verse 35, it twists, it turns. Here is the climax. She conceives again and bears a son and says, this time, as opposed to all the other times, this time I will praise the Lord. There is defiance in this claim. There is uh, Leah saying, I am done trying to be satisfied. I bore three sons with all the pain and mess that comes with it, and it didn't work, and I'm done with this. My husband can think whatever he wants to think, and I can still have joy. I can still be satisfied because I'm going to praise God. This time, as opposed to everything else, I will praise the Lord. Notice, son is not in the picture. Husband is not in the picture. It's just me and God. That's all it is. Let them do whatever they want to do. It won't change my joy and my satisfaction. I will praise the Lord, no matter what happens. And so she names her son based on that phrase, I will praise the Lord this time. I will praise the Lord this time. It's amazing in this sentence, she My Bible has Lord in all capitals. She's calling upon the name of Yahweh. It's not just Elohim. It's not just, God, if you're out there, I'm going to praise you instead. Somehow she heard of the personal name of God, maybe through Jacob, maybe through Laban. She heard there is a God who, because of his grace, has called you into his family. There is a God who loves you. And so she calls upon his name and says, would you please love me? You are the one that I'm going to look to for satisfaction. You are the one I'm going to place my hope in. I'm going to praise you. Come what may. Let everything be gone from me. Let my husband despise me. It will not matter. I will still praise the Lord. Even as Job said this morning in our family Bible hour, he can take away whatever he wants. He can give whatever he wants, and I'm still going to worship God. Leah finally gets it. She finally gets it. Only God can satisfy. I have been so foolish for seeking to be satisfied by my husband alone. So I'm going to reorient my life around God. And as she does this, she names her son Judah. And she stops bearing children. Now there is something so magnificent about this passage. Because as you know, later in Genesis chapter 49, we find out that the promised Messiah, the only one who can reconcile us to the Father so that we can praise him, so that we can have peace with him, so that we can be satisfied by him and in him, would come through the line and lineage of Judah. When she finally gets it, she's going to give birth to the great, 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 great grandfather 
of the one who will pour out his grace upon her and love her unconditionally. Salvation would come into the world, but not through beautiful Rachel. Salvation would come through unloved Leah. Salvation would come through the son that she gives birth to when she finally gets it. The reality is that Jesus came to bring us to God. Jesus came so that God can truly be our father. How many times does the Bible say that he is a father to the fatherless? He is a lover of the loveless. He is a father to the orphan and a husband to the widow. He protects them. He cares for them. So many times in our moralistic mindset, the God that we think of in moralism favors those who do well, are successful, who help themselves, right? God will help those who help themselves. That's moralistic religion. If you do well, God will love you. But in the Bible, the one true God saves by grace, not by merit. The one true God does not look at us and say, okay, who's lovely? Who's admirable? Who's worth it? I will save them. And just as salvation comes ultimately through Leah giving birth to Judah, so too God shows favor to those who are unlovely. Yes, God is our king. We are his subjects. We are his slaves. And yes, God is the great shepherd. And as we've seen before, sheep are dumb. And so we are dumb. But God is also the bridegroom. God is also our husband. We are his bride. And brothers and sisters, this morning, if you are in Christ, he is completely ravished by you. He loves you. He is blown away by you. He cares for you. He has an affection for you that he has for no one else that is outside of his bride. He loves you. He chased us down. The picture of Hosea. We were prostituting ourselves. We were married to him, unfaithful to him, prostituting ourselves. He chased us down and said, you know what? I will buy you back to me. And we said, why would you ever love me? Why would you ever love me? Look at all the things I've done. And God says, I've never loved you because of what you do or don't do. I love you because I love you. And nothing can snatch that love out of your hands. I've given it to you. Nothing can take us away or separate us from the love of God. And so I'm going to take you and I'm going to woo you back to myself. Hosea chapter 2 says, I'm going to bring you back. We're going to be engaged all over again. And I'm going to betroth you to myself. And we're going to go away on our honeymoon, a second honeymoon, just for paradise and just enjoy each other. And I'm going to lavish my love on you. That is the powerful truth that will enable us to overcome the idol of love. That is the gospel If we ever think that God's going to love us because of what we do, we will always be stuck under the crushing weight of morality. I better perform. That's not the way it's going to work. Singles need to hear that their ultimate fulfillment is found in the love of Christ and in loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And a spouse is not going to do that. But married couples need to know this truth as well. In order to save their marriages, they can't place the crushing weight of their divine expectations on being fulfilled in and by their spouse. You can't do that. Now, please hear me correctly here. It isn't that we should not try to love our spouses more. It isn't that it's wrong to have that. It isn't that you should walk away from here saying to your spouse, guess what, I don't have to love you. Don't do that, okay? That's not what I'm saying. 
Don't try to love your spouse any less. You need to love Jesus more. You need to love him more. That is the takeaway. You need to love him more. And here's the beauty of the way that God designed us. The more we love Jesus, the better we will love our spouses. The better we will. The more we love Jesus, the more we will take the crushing weight of being loved and the idol of, oh, if only I would have the love and acceptance of my spouse or my mom or my dad or whoever it is, we'll take that weight away and we will be freed to be loved by them whenever they want to, be despised by them. It's okay. When God came to earth in Jesus Christ, he became the man that nobody wanted. He was born in a manger. He had no beauty that we should esteem him. So much like Leah, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Why did he become a man that nobody wanted? Willingly, he did so for you and me. So may we say this morning, I will praise God. I will praise God. He is blown away with love and affection for me in a way that we'll never understand. God crushed his son so that he could have us, so he could purchase us. As ludicrous as Jacob serving Laban for seven years was, it is insane that God would say, I will kill my son in order to have Patrick. But he did that. Thomas Chalmers says, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Thus, it is not enough to hold out to the world the mirror of its own imperfections. It's not enough to say, I know this won't satisfy It is not enough to come forth with a demonstration of the evanescence of the character of your enjoyments, the fleeting nature of your enjoyments, or to speak to the conscience of its follies. Rather, try every legitimate method of finding access to your hearts for the love of God who is greater than the world itself. How do we combat the idol of love in our hearts? We realize that we are loved by majesty. We are loved by majesty, the God of the universe, and nothing can ever separate us from that love. That's how you do that. Father, I pray that as we struggle through an understanding of the loves that we have, the things that we so easily cling to to satisfy us, God, may we this moment stare at Christ and the love that he has for us Your love is so amazing, unending. You cherish lowly, sinful, wicked people because you are amazing and your love is matchless. God, I pray for all of us. To some degree or another, we struggle with this. If I could only have that thing, maybe it is a person, maybe it's the love of somebody, maybe it's affection that we're not feeling that we are getting that maybe we think we deserve, maybe we do. God, may we in this moment, right now, dispossess our hearts of old affections for things that won't satisfy and place our minds and our hearts and our eyes, fix them on the love that Jesus has for us so that we will never again question whether or not we are loved. We've been loved by the God of the universe and nothing can separate us from his deep, deep, amazing love.